you would this morning turn with me to the book of Mark, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Mark 6, 1 through 13. As you turn there, I want to ask you a couple of questions. First one is this, have you wondered what modern writers would write about the childhood and background of Jesus? I think they would paint him as some kind of tragic victim, perhaps highlighting some mental problem that he struggled with, and declare him either a misunderstood man or a villain to both traditionalists and progressives, unliked and killed as a result of a culture that didn't like that kind of challenge. Now, there's no doubt Jesus was misunderstood. I think that's true. I don't know that I would call him a tragic victim, although it seems like everybody seems to be one these days. But Jesus was not just misunderstood. He was hated. And he was called by a crowd of people who should have known who he, who he was and what he had come for to be crucified cruelly on a cross like a common criminal. Why was this the case? Well, in a microcosm, we see one reason, perhaps why, amongst his own hometown. Follow along as I read from chapter 6. We'll be looking at two sections, one on his rejection in his hometown and the other on sending out his apostles. So as Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this, this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he lay his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages, teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. If any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. As we consider the reading of this word, let us bow briefly in prayer. O oh Lord, this is your word. We thank you for the privilege of having it in modern day English. We thank you for the privilege of having a church that proclaims your glory, but Lord also loves your word. 
Father, may this word by your spirit come to ears that hear it and hearts that understand it because you are at work within us. And Lord, may anything in our hearts, anything in our thoughts, anything from my mouth that is not consistent with your own be cast away, never to be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Despite what you may hear, there still are times when a stranger might commend you for being a Christian. They might accost you at the airport or understand in a car or a taxi. You might tell them, yes, I go to church, and they might say, yes, you do the church thing. That's great. And then if you're like me and they say, they ask you what line of work you're in, and I'll say, well, I'm a pastor. And I'll say, oh, that's a good man. And then as you begin to talk to them, perhaps it's when you get to the point that, no, I'm not a good man. No, the church thing does not make me great. In fact, I have the inability to be good, and neither you or I are good or great in any sense of the word. And you might call them and yourself once again to repentance. Words like judgmental come across. And then you might come to the opportunity to tell them the only way to salvation is by Christ alone. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, as we read in the book of Acts. And you might hear these words like, oh, that's not inclusivity, that's exclusivity. It is unloving. And then when it comes to talk about faith, and you say that faith is based not on some pie-in-the-sky, cherry-flavored hope that is ethereal, but it's based on truth and trust in God's chosen Christ and not our own idea of who he is. There is no worldly consent. The world does not like the church. The world does not like the gospel. The world does not like Jesus Christ. The world, when it comes down to it, if they really knew who you and I are, if we truly are following Christ, they would not like us either. But that's normal. Because Christ is no worldly title. Christ has no worldly ministry, and Christ gives no worldly mission. It is out of this world because it's in his kingdom. First of all, in this section of scripture, we're reminded of what happened in Nazareth. That's his hometown. It's interesting, you know, he was born in Bethlehem, but he did not spend much time there. In fact, when he was quite young, they fled to Egypt. When they came back, they found out that Archelaus, the son of dead King Herod, was even more cruel than his father. And so they went to the region of Galilee, to the town of Nazareth, which was now considered Jesus' hometown. So much so that Jesus is still referred to as the Nazarene. So this is where he was. Verse 2 tells us, on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Now, the family of Jesus and his hometown had one thing right. They understood 
that the wisdom of his teaching, which is contained in more detail, particularly in the book of Luke, on your bulletin in the back on the outline is the entire uh, section from Luke, which we think is either parallel to this or perhaps an earlier occasion. I tend to think it's a parallel of this particular text. And it reminds us in this section, his teaching is this. He tells them things like this. This passage of Isaiah that he quotes from is fulfilled in your sight about ministering to the people and being the chosen one, in a sense. And as he teaches these things, he reminds them that it wasn't to the people of Israel, the widows in Israel, that Elijah came. It was to the widow of Zarephath. And he said to them, it wasn't to all the lepers in Israel that Elisha was sent to, but Naaman the Syrian was healed. This was the type of teaching he was giving in the church. They had already heard of his miracles and his powers. In fact, they asked the question, how are such mighty works done by his hands? They also question him. You know, this is really a lot of the book of Mark is questioning, who is this guy? You know, they ask that throughout the scriptures up to this point, and they're asking him in Nazareth as well. They say, we think we know who he is. How can he be a wise person? In other words, he wasn't taught in the rabbinical methods of teaching the scriptures to the rabbis, the, the scholars of the day. How could he have this wisdom? They're also saying, how can he do miracles and powers? Who is he? Because they think they know who he is. Is this not the carpenter? Is he not related to a family living in Nazareth? And it lists here four brothers and an unknown number of sisters. They recognize that this kind of wisdom that he has and the power that he has displayed throughout the region by this point is not biological. You know, Mary and Joseph had no miraculous powers like this, and still don't. It's not familial. In other words, it's not a trait that runs in the family. It's not that they would say, oh, there's James over there. He's the brother of Jesus. He's, a, he's an amazing guy. No. They were just common Everyday people, they knew the names of these individuals. A side note is, if you come from certain traditions, note this, Mary certainly was not an everlasting virgin. She had at least six other children besides Jesus. He had brothers and sisters. And he reminds them here, a prophet is respected in some places. Sometimes he's given disrespect but often respected, but not honor given local heroes. Prophets have no honor in their hometown. You know how it is when somebody has hometown hero status. Perhaps they've saved someone from 
a burning fire. Perhaps they have gone out and accomplished great things in society. Perhaps they've been known worldwide for their writings or for some other thing, and they get honors and they get things in their hometown devoted to them, even statues built for them or whatever the case may be. And he says this, prophets, however, get no honor in their hometown. Because what do prophets do? If it's a true prophet of God, the prophet tells you how terrible you are and how you need to repent and come with humility to God. No honor given local heroes. Prophets given no honor. And even this phrase is particularly derogatory. It says this, Is not this the carpenter the son of Mary? Now, if you understand the culture of the day, you didn't call somebody by their mother's name. You called them by their father's name. Now, it could be innocently that maybe this is just recognizing maybe Joseph has died by now, but it's likely that they are saying bad things about the name of Mary here, and particularly Jesus. You can imagine the words that would be used to describe him today. No honor. So the people there are saying, we know the family. We know there's nothing spectacular about this family. We know there, there's nothing to suggest that this man would have the training to be wise, would have the ability to do amazing and powerful things. After all, he's a handyman in town. He's just a carpenter. How can he do these things? But the family in the hometown did have one thing wrong. The wisdom and power of Jesus was not of this world. Yes, they had it right. They understood that the wisdom and power that Jesus was displaying was not of this world. They understood that, but they could not attribute it to Jesus because of the blinders over their eyes, the veil that has come down over them, so to speak. And so they were wrong in thinking that Jesus could not have wisdom and power that was not of this world. But here's the demand of God. Faith in his son. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them and he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, there are all kinds of Christological questions we could ask by this, couldn't we? Was he really not able to do these things? Was it an inability to do those things? I don't think it was that Jesus couldn't do them. It was that in this particular instance, it was not permitted because of the lack of faith. Now, it doesn't mean that, hey, everybody who believes something will be healed. If that were to take place, many of us would have 150-year-old fathers or grandfathers still living. 200, 300, 400. We know that's not the case. That's silly. But it is a reminder that God's powerful work is to be among his people who trust in his son. Jesus, it says, marveled at their unbelief. The word here, the tense of this verb here is continued to marvel. He wasn't surprised at their unbelief. In fact, he knew from scriptures he was going to be rejected. 
He wasn't surprised here. In fact, by this point in time, his own family had come looking for him, thought he was plumb crazy, and sought to take him away from the ministry. And he said, these aren't my fathers and brothers. And he says, you at my feet, you who are learning the word of God, you who believe in me are my fathers and brothers and sisters. So he wasn't surprised at their unbelief, but he marveled at the depth and the magnitude of it. They really rejected him. In fact, when you look at the section in Luke, you'll notice what the response was when they heard these words about the lepers and the widows. When they heard the words that God was doing this for people outside Israel instead of those Israelites, and Jesus was applying that to the situation at hand, they sought to throw him off the cliff that built the town upon which the town was built. You see, the title Christ is not about the geopolitical kingdom of Israel. It's about the kingdom of God. I remember when I was in high school, there was a guy that uh, was in this little county we lived in. I lived in the smallest county in Illinois, both population-wise and in geography. And it was the county, Henderson County. I lived in a little town called Biggsville. And there was a little town nearby named Oquaka. It was, of course, an Indian name. And here, there was a guy there that was a good golfer. This golfer was in this little town, grew up in this small county, of which now there's only even one public school in the entire county. And he was such a good golfer, he decided to turn pro. In 1987, he turned pro, and seven times he tried unsuccessfully to gain his PGA card. So he went to Japan and joined the Japan Tour and played there for 12 years. When he was 38, he came back for an eighth and final attempt to make the PGA Tour. And he made it. He was a 38-year-old rookie. And that year, he won the U.S. Open. His name was Todd Hamilton. And I have to say, I had no idea he had even made the tour. I graduated from high school in 1990 in that particular town. And we knew about Todd. We knew the public golf course, probably the only golf course in the entire county, which was nine holes. And we knew that he would play there and he would teach people golf and everything, but we knew he wasn't really good enough to make it. And so when we heard that he had won the U.S. Open, I thought, not Todd Hamilton. We know him. We know he's not really good enough. We, we know the, the abilities he has. We know where he comes from. That is incredible. It must be some other guy named Todd Hamilton. We're told that familiarity breeds contempt. The people in Nazareth not only didn't think that Jesus had the gifts or skills to do amazing or incredible things, but they were rejecting him as the Christ that God had sent. You see, Jesus is God's Christ. He's not the people's chosen hero. Left to the depravity of our own minds and wills, we will reject Jesus every time. 
Christ has no worldly title, but he also has no worldly ministry. You see his ministry there in this passage and so far in the book of Mark, he's not about presenting a new theory. You know, people love new things, don't they? I, I'm always interested in, in new things. I've been, I've been reminded by somebody at Presbytery this week that we're, we're going to have to deal uh, with those that are promoting transhumanism. And we're going to have to come up with why we're for or against those things as Christians so that when these types of things come up, these new ideas and these new theories and all those things, we're going to have an answer to give them from Scripture. Not from our own ideas or our own fears or anxieties, but from what we believe God is telling us in His Word. But Jesus wasn't presenting the latest fad or the new, newest technology or the newest theory in fact, the people there did not even deny that he had wisdom and power. There was no denial of it. You see, that the scribes and the Pharisees could not even answer his wisdom. They'd seen nothing like it. And the people said, he teaches as the, someone with authority, unlike those scribes or Pharisees. There was no denial of his power. Many of them knew somebody who had been healed by him. They had seen the works or at least heard the rumors of them from the towns around them. There was no denial of the wisdom and power of God, and it had to be something greater than the everyday. Of course, it was not just about a medical breakthrough, was it? Even here, largely rejected to, to the point that the people were directly opposed to him, he still was able to lay his hands on a few sick people and they were healed. It was not about a, a, the latest medical breakthroughs, about the real powers of healing that only come from God. But what was his ministry really about? It was about his spiritual presence and his lordship. He had authority over all these things. Now we know it was faith-based uh, in order for these things to, to take place. He was encouraging within the people faith in him. And if there was not faith in him, he would move on. Yes, he would go to the Jews first and then the Gentiles, but when they rejected him, as he said and reminded that we're going to see in a few minutes, he told the apostles, you will be rejected. And then you'll move on. But it's in the context of witnessing his power. These people knew his authority here over death, over creation, over even the supernatural as demons were cast out in his ministry. His ministry was about this authority over all things. And he will give this authority to the apostles. You see, this is no worldly ministry. This is not like the world. This is not the latest fad. This is not the latest teaching. This is about the lordship of Jesus Christ. Is he truly the divine son of God? Is he the Christ that was promised in the scriptures? The people in his hometown said no. I remember one of my first experiences vacationing, vacationing with a timeshare vacation. You've heard of those, haven't you? Perhaps in Myrtle Beach, you've seen them. They're very common. Now we have commercials that try to get you out of timeshares. But I remember the first timeshare vacation, and we got a free vacation. 
But, you know, we had to go to these little uh, seminars or these little sales pitches that somebody would come and sit down with the salesman. And I remember this experience, and I know my wife vividly remembers it. This particular individual sat down with me. He said, what is your line of work? And I said, I'm a pastor. I said, oh, that's great. You're just like me. You're a salesman. <laughs> and I begged to differ. I said, well, it's not, not quite the same. I, I don't agree with that analogy. He said, oh, yes, it really is. And he began to explain why it was true. There was a salesman. Of course, the, 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 I think the red started rising up into my cheeks. And I, I, I said, please, I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't agree with that analogy. Because salesman, you're trying to get somebody to buy something. A pastor, he's trying to give the truth and proclaim Jesus Christ. Now, in this particular case, the salesman wouldn't give up the manager over him, his boss, realized that he was not only losing a sale, he was making the client angry. I was kind of, as we left, I kind of feared for this guy's job. But you know, the world tells us that following Jesus is a self-help self -help method. Or it's a sales plan. If we just do the right things, then they'll come in the doors. If they come in the doors, then they'll utilize our programs. If they utilize our programs, they're bound to come and become members of our church, right? That's worldly ministry. It doesn't mean programs are evil. It doesn't mean that we don't invite people to come in. There's no method. There's no even evangelistic method or even some type of discipling effort that is the perfect program to change people and bring them to Christ. Because it's not a worldly ministry. It's the Holy Spirit who comes where he will. He will blow as the wind. We will not know where he comes or where he's going. But we do know he has great power and he does this through his word and through the church, this imperfect instrument of imperfect people. Christ is Lord and he has the wisdom and power of God and so he does not give us a worldly mission just as he did in the apostles. Notice what they were called to do. First of all, the authority of Christ was given to them. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. This is not a worldly enterprise, is it? It's not as if we can go to some seminar some church seminar even, and say, okay, let me explain to you how you can have power over evil spirits. No, it has to be given by the Lord. Then he says to them this very strange thing, go out and don't take anything with you. Don't take supplies, don't take food, don't take extra sandals or anything like that. Uh, don't take any of these things. Why? Because their dependence on Christ is demanded. It's not about them. As a pastor, I know it can be quite tempting to enjoy the increases they give you in your salary every year. To want to demand that they reimburse you every time there's a ministry expense. But we're reminded we must be dependent upon Christ. And then he says this, Verse 11, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. In other words, persecution is expected. 
if our church does not feel some pushback from somebody somewhere, what are we doing? It's expected. You know, I think it's interesting. There are so many churches and so many ministries today which are really nice. They're accepting. They're not judgmental. They invite everybody in. And they're so nice, they, they don't really say anything bad about anybody. And they just say, hey, come on, enjoy God's unconditional love. And there's no judging there. Christians are not persecuted there either. Because everybody is just nice to each other. In fact, one of our great individuals of today, a great preacher and thinker, he says the 11th commandment of America is thou shalt be nice. But you know, it's interesting to me what takes place in this ministry. They go out. They go out two by two. I think that's a wise thing, particularly uh, so that there's not just one witness. There's two, as the scripture prescribes. There are two witnesses for any legal situation. They also are there to support one another and encourage each other. And it says here, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. You see, the truth and warning of Christ is proclaimed in the kingdom ministry. Repentance. Just like the people by this point were all seeming to ask, who is Jesus? And they ask it in various different ways, various different groups of people. So you find out that every person involved in kingdom work is calling people to repent. John the Baptist did this in his first sermon. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And then when Jesus began his ministry in chapter 1, verse 15, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And then when Jesus sends out his apostles for the first time on one of these ministries where they're doing powerful miracles and proclaiming the word, what are they doing? They are proclaiming repentance. You want to know what the problem of the church is today? First of all, they often don't preach the word. But secondly, they also don't proclaim repentance. I tried to look up the word in my concordance, conditional or unconditional. You know, the King James doesn't have that. The ESV doesn't have those words either. We've been told time and time again that God's love is unconditional. And that's a statement that must be made under certain conditions. <laughs> because God's love is unconditional for those he chose in him before the foundation of the world, that he would change their hearts, and he would be steadfastly faithful to them to the end. But it is conditional in the sense that if somebody does not repent and believe in him, God does not love him the same way. He will go to hell if he does not repent and believe. And that, in my book, is not necessarily unconditional love, is it? God hates the sinner. And this world around us, we need to be reminded, I need to be reminded that on a daily basis when I'm tempted to do things I don't want to do, I need to be reminded, God wants you to repent from your sins. And I even have the assurance that because God began a work in me, he'll carry it to completion, but he still wants me to turn from my sins. The world around us wants to tell us that we can just come and enjoy all the benefits of God in heaven. All we have to do is die and we'll get there. But no, Jesus, John the Baptist, the apostles, Paul, Peter, James, they all say, repent of your sins. 
in the recent election of a House Speaker in our country, which has been a long, rather wandering path. I read that former President Trump joked that the only one who could get universal support was Jesus. Nothing could be further from the truth. The vast majority of the House and all of our people, if they knew him, would reject him. The message of the gospel is not inclusive, that you can just go down any path and find your way to heaven. It is not inclusive in that you can just pick the truth from a category of flavors like going to Baskin-Robbins. It is exclusive. It's Christ or nothing. It is not unconditional that God loves every person unconditionally. It is conditional on whether or not that person repents and has faith in him. And behind the scenes, God has chosen him, worked in him from before the creation of the world. You see, here is a reminder once again. Even the people that love Jesus knew Jesus, walked beside Jesus. When they saw who he was and what he was doing, they flat out rejected him. It would take a miracle of new birth for them to believe in Jesus. You see, working in the kingdom is like this. It's not about all of the things that we can do, all the things that we can grow. It's all about submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ and proclaiming the wonders of the kingdom, but the necessity of repenting and believing in Jesus Christ. So the apostles went out. They did amazing things. Scripture tells us you look at all the parallel passages, they healed people, they cast out demons, they taught, they preached, they did all those things, but Mark reminds us the core of their message is repent. Repent and believe on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this word. We thank you for this reminder. We thank you on Reformation Sunday for all those faithful brothers and fathers in the past who have proclaimed this message of repentance and faith. Faith in Christ alone. In the scriptures the authority over us alone, by grace alone, not earned, in Christ alone. Glory be to you alone, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit.